Welcome to Perfect Night In. I'm your host, Neil Perryman, and today's special guest is a good friend of mine, the author, editor, and podcaster, Mr. Andy Miller. Andy's books include The Year of Reading Dangerously, How 50 Great Books Saved My Life, which is brilliant, frankly, and he's also the co-host of Backlisted, the podcast that gives life to old books. But there's a lot more to Andy than just old books. He loves old TV as well, and he's given me the postcode of a secret address where I've been told to go and meet him. So let's do that, shall we? Hello, Andy. Hello, Neil. Thank you so much for agreeing to share your perfect night in with us. Can you explain to us where your perfect night in takes place? Yes, I can. So we're watching telly, probably quite a futuristic telly, and we are in the revolving restaurant of the post office tower. But not as it was in the 1960s, as it is right now, derelicts. (laughs) So we're sitting on like some boxes and we're looking, we've smuggled a telly up here and a hard drive. And we're looking out over London. And we're dreaming of the past. Fittingly, we're in an environment that was splendid in the 1960s, but is perhaps seen better days. That seems to be the link between many of these programmes. So it seems appropriate. Okay, Andy, it's 6.30pm. Let's get your perfect night in started. So my uh, first choice is episode 23 of series 5 of The Avengers, uh, the 1960s TV series. The episode is called Murdersville. This is the series that was the second series that Diana Rigg made and it's the one that's in colour. I was born in 1968 so this was first broadcast the year before I was born and when I was growing up The Avengers wasn't on TV. And I thought of the Avengers as being the Marvel Avengers, the Marvel comic. But I'd heard about this series, the Avengers, and it sounded good. And my dad used to watch films and things and say, oh, this is a bit like the Avengers. And when I asked him once, what, what was the Avengers? What was it? And he said, OK, it was a program where a man in a bowler hat and a woman, and the woman would change, would <laughs> investigate, say, a restaurant or a school or an educational establishment for nannies and then it would turn out that it it was a front for spies and that's it <laughs> he was right that's the plot of every episode of the avengers in all seven seasons so what is it about this particular episode that appeals to you andy well i think this is the best episode of the best series of the avengers i really love the program because it is that perfect 60s combination of pop and colour and style over substance where the style becomes the substance of the thing itself and so in this episode Murdersville the <laughs> with due respect to my late father he's quite right in this instance the front for spies <laughs> is a whole village and the village is like a, a, a traditional English village with a village green and a pub and a manor house and a squire and all that thing, except everyone who's there is a murderer. The whole village has one man. They all connived at murder. Dr. Haynes swore the victim and died of a heart attack, and the murderer had as many witnesses as he needed to prove it. He bought an entire community, the perfect crime. But since then... Well, then the seeds were sown, weren't they? Mm. A million divided wasn't enough. The people had tasted money. They became greedier, so they held another meeting. And agreed to offer the same service to others. For a fat fee, you can lure your enemy to this village and then kill him at will and get away with it. It does that brilliant thing of what happens in it matters, but simultaneously it doesn't matter at all. It's like a comic strip or a cartoon. It also has Patrick McNee at his most stylish and Diana Rigg at her most glamorous. It's sort of the best-looking TV programme ever made, except maybe The Prisoner. I didn't choose The Prisoner, but I could have chosen The Prisoner. There's quite a few 1960s programmes in my perfect night in. But there are also things that I remember watching in the 80s as a teenager. And I think if you are uh, in your 40s or early 50s, that was a really brilliant time, TV in the 80s. The introduction of Channel 4 and BBC Two competing with Channel 4 meant that suddenly on TV again, all these things that you'd only been able to read about when we were kids were on TV again. They reran the whole of Star Trek on BBC Two in the mid-80s. 
they ran the whole of The Prisoner twice on Channel 4. And they started showing The Avengers. And they were on at about... I seem to remember The Avengers was on at about 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock or something. So you could come in from school and do your homework and have your tea and then see this these beautifully written and designed and acted little one-act plays, you know, three quarters of an hour, 50 minutes. I think it's made on 35 mil and it's made for sale to the States because there's loads of American money in it. And it basically has the crew that would have been working in British cinema at the same time as well. So the production standards on it are incredibly high. You could watch it in the 80s and as you can watch it now, I think, and part of its charm is nostalgia, but part of it is it still really works as a piece of filmmaking or or, or TV. And I, I hope that all the things that I've programmed on this Perfect Night In do the same. I'm aware that there is quite a lot of nostalgic viewing going on with these things, but at the same time there's a kind of classicism to it as well. And it's not like I don't think that that classicism exists anymore, because clearly it does. Uh, I was thinking earlier, oh God, I didn't choose... Why didn't I put Deadwood in here, right, for instance? I love Deadwood. But then once I was up and running with, with programming it, it sort of seemed, things seemed to suggest themselves. I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of these programmes, and The Avengers is one, its timelessness beats any kind of nostalgic appeal, although the nostalgic appeal is still part of it. Not only are we going to be late for this party, but the ambassador is going to take it as a personal affront. Oh, we all know his reputation as a womanizer, but to turn up in armour really is very inconvenient. You're telling me I couldn't find a dress to match it. The thing about the Avengers is it really changes from season to season as well. The black and white Diana Riggs season, the one that precedes this, the plots are much tighter and the, the narratives have more in them that would lead you to... They want you to get invested in the characters. When they make this series, they clearly don't care as much. And that ought to be a problem. That, that ought to be something that you sort of think, well, I look at this, but mm, it's kind of inert. But it's so well executed and the rhythm of it is so good. And they walk this brilliant line between not taking it seriously at all and because you've got an actress as good as Diana Rigg, making you think actually no this does kind of it does kind of matter what happens there's a scene in this where she gets dunked in the pond at the village green she gets tortured and torturing emma peel is a big thing in the avengers you probably for various reasons you probably wouldn't get away with this now but the dunking her in the pond they actually do it there's no no, the, the issues of health and safety are so far off in the distance. And they've just gone, OK, we're going, we're going for a take now, die, love. Down she goes, held under the water for 10 seconds. Up she comes, delivers the line. So, you know, hats off to Dame Diana. OK, Andy, so the Avengers takes up to 7.30 and your next choice is... <laughs> Yeah, so um, I've done a very obvious thing, it being 7.30, and I've chosen Top of the Pops. I've chosen Top of the Pops for two reasons. The first is nostalgia for Top of the Pops. And the second is nostalgia for the repeats of Top of the Pops on BBC4. <laughs> <laughs> because already, I, I, we're on Top of the Pops 1987 now, and I'm already pining for the glory days of Top of the Pops 1979. <laughs> I'm just not enjoying it anymore. And I, one of the reasons is... Um, because I was ooh, 18 or 19 in 1987. And in some ways, I'm kind of the same listener then that I am now. Not in every way, but clearly in some ways. And so I can remember the records really clearly. And my, my feelings about the records are often, though not always, kind of stuck in 1987. I've been watching the, the, the last few episodes and feeling as I did then you're just sort of hanging around waiting for the Smiths to come on. Except now, now we're not even allowed to like the Smiths anymore because of, <laughs> because of the disappointing actions of the lunatic Morrissey. The whole thing has become really... I mean, you remember 
because you've we've known one another a long time. My childlike joy when I joined Twitter of tweeting along with Top of the Pops, always losing three or four bookish followers every time I did it because <laughs> they couldn't cope with it. They'd signed up for a man talking about George Eliot. Suddenly they were having to deal with with a lunatic spewing venom about... Boy George. <laughs> Boy, no, not Boy George. <laughs> shame, shame. Uh, I just... And that was so much fun. Th- those That first few years of watching Top of the Pops again and never, and never thinking I'd ever get to see those episodes again unless I really sought them out. And again, on the one hand, feeling very nostalgic about it. But on the other, that kind of run from 1978 to 82, thinking this was a really good patch. And then it kind of tails off into the mid 80s and then is about to come good again in the late 80s. Funnily enough, it's being able to see groups like the Regents or was it what was that record by? Was he called Driver 57? Was it Car 57 by Driver 57? Car 67, where are you? Come in 67, I mean, I hadn't heard that since 1979 or 1980. And I probably don't need to hear it again until I die. And then it'll be playing when I die. Uh, <laughs> And it'll turn out to have been a premonition. We want you to pick up a young lady at 83 Royal Gardens. Because I would have been 11 or 12, 1979, 1980. It's all the sort of new wave pop groups. Being able to see Elvis Costello and XTC and the Buzzcocks and all these ugly, <laughs> horrible looking, pimply blokes. I really love being able to see the Vapors doing Turning Japanese, even though the introduction to it by Steve Wright on one of the weeks is the most racist thing you've ever seen. Even more racist than the record. Okay, we have a slightly uh, Japanese song for you right now. This is The Vapors and Turning Japanese. And then uh, a few weeks ago in Margate, I went to see the Vapors playing a live gig. Do you know what the connection is between the Vapors and Doctor Who? There's a connection? There certainly is, and it's not the talents of Wen Chiang. Thank God for that. Go on then, what is the connection? Okay, so the Vapors guitar player, and if you go and see them, he's still their guitar player, It is Ed Basiljet. Doctor Who director Ed Basiljet is the lead guitarist of the Vapors. He was in the 80s, and he still is. They split up in 1983, and they got back together about two years ago. Their album, their first album, Nuclear Days, which is the one with Tony Japanese on it, that's one of the first records I ever bought with my own money. I bought it from Boots in the Whitgift Centre in Croydon. And you know what it's like when you're 11 or 12, you haven't got many records. And the ones you have got, you tend to be note perfect in, or word perfect in, forever. And I went to see The Vapors, and I was really... <laughs> I was really acutely aware that I knew all the words to the songs better than the members of the Vapors. <laughs> I was sort of, you know, doing the pogo up and down at the front, yelling the lyrics at them to try and help them along. I've been raising a child over the last 16 years. My own. And... Uh, you know, I don't ask the BBC for much. I'm happy to pay my licence fee. And I, the only things I'd like in exchange for the money, really, are Doctor Who on TV and Top of the Pops on TV. And definitely, uh, as my son has been growing up, we really missed that half an hour a week where you could all watch the same thing and pass judgement on it. Before we move on to your 8 o'clock choice, I'm feeling a bit peckish. Can I get you a nice snack? Yes, uh, I could I request up go to the kitchen mm-hmm. up here in the post office tower restaurant, the derelict, the derelict kitchen, and <laughs> see if you can find a tin which has still got some uh, cheese and biscuits in it. 
That's a bit generic, cheese and biscuits. Can you narrow it down for me? What kind of cheese what and what it's kind generic. of... generic. What kind of cheese and what kind of biscuits? It's cheese and biscuits. You say bread was generic, would you? I suppose you would. Uh, all right, I'd like some uh, Cathedral City cheddar and some Jacob's cream crackers, please. I just want some normal food. I want the brand-leading cheese and... The brand leading cracker. When I fancy a bite to eat, I like something to bite on. Sometimes I find bread too soft and doughy. That's why I keep the Jacob's Cream Crackers handy. Jacob's Cream Crackers are baked just right. They're crisp, they're light, and they're... Crackers! So if you like a crack with your snack, get Jacob's Cream Crackers. And keep them by the bread bin. If I'm not back in 15 minutes, send out a search party. In the meantime, <laughs> I'm going to leave you to introduce your eight o'clock choice, which is... So listen to that music. Do you know who wrote that music? It's Michael... No, the actual Michael Nyman did a very Michael Nyman sounding like arrangement of um, whatever military march that is as the theme music for Fairly Secret Army by David Nobbs. David Nobbs was a great hero of mine as a writer. He wrote the books and, of course, the scripts of The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin. And I could have chosen that. I could have chosen A Bit of a Do. The, the novels are brilliant. That, that was on TV in the 80s as well with David Jason. But I went for Fairly Secret Army because it's never come out on VHS. It's never come out on DVD. It was on Channel 4 in the early days of Channel 4 again. And someone has put the whole thing up on YouTube. Thank God. All 13 episodes of it. And I hadn't seen it for years. I mean, really, I hadn't seen it for 30 years. And I'm not even sure if it stands up in some ways. But then the things that might not stand up about it might indeed have been the things why it was considered quite marginal even in the 80s. And yet at the same time, it's really got something. It's, really, it's almost shot against the grain for a sitcom. It's got no laughter track. It's all done on 16 mil, isn't it? It's all on location. It's shot as though it were a fly-on-the-wall documentary. Not in the office kind of way, but in a kind of much more laid-back, early 80s documentary style. So there's all these shots of them delivering quite rapid-fire dialogue while walking around a sunken garden shot from about 20 feet away. <laughs> it's very, very peculiar. Join me, Curly. Well, how can the two of us work together? You've just said I'm a selfish bastard, and I think you're a pompous, prickish prat. Precisely. Friendship turns to betrayal. Love withers into indifference. Hatred lasts. You and I could have the perfect working relationship. And also it's got Geoffrey Palmer playing Jimmy from the Reggie Perrin series. Only they can't call him Jimmy because the, the copyright was tied up with Reggie Perrin. And also Truscott in Fairly Secret Army is, a bit, is something more... He's a bit less lovable than Jimmy is in Reggie Perrin. The character, as you will recall, has this sort of incredibly amusing, military, clipped way of speaking. You know, tr tricky chap, Johnny Sitcom. You know, it's all that kind of thing. And um, the series was script edited by uh, John Cleese. And David Nobb subsequently said he thinks John Cleese was a terrible script editor for it because John Cleese found it too funny. <laughs> so it would just, so it would just wave everything through, going, "This is brilliant, David." <laughs> We don't need to change a word of this. Um, and it's about a man who, on the point of, on the brink of suicide in the in suburban Surrey, decides that he won't kill himself, but he will instead found a right wing secret army while using a health food shop as a front. In episode three or four, there's a cameo appearance by Colin Jeevans as a health inspector who looks like Hitler, which... The other day when I was watching it made me cry and cry with laughter. The whole scene did. And what I found with watching Fairly Secret Army 
is bits of it don't work but the bits that do certainly once they're into the second or third episode the intensity of the dialogue is fantastic uh, this is mr sitwell planning officer examining property regards giving us planning permission for our health food shop yes well sounds just the job for me wholemeal bread free-range eggs nuts lentils rices spices ices that whole thing's my bag of beans so well mr truscott i can find no reason not to recommend that planning permission be given good Top hole. Thanks very much, Mr. Hitler. How did it feel watching it here in the future? I just kept thinking if he was still alive, he would be probably fronting UKIP, wouldn't he? Or an extreme military branch of UKIP. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That is the sadness of watching it. You know, what was considered a preposterous joke in 1984 now seems sort of depressingly plausible. It is about quite a serious subject. And Truscott, as played by Geoffrey Palmer, it's a really interesting thing that Nobbs does with that character. He obviously loves the character, and he obviously loves the way that he talks, and a lot of the jokes come out of the way that he talks. But he is treated with compassion. You wouldn't want to watch that show if Truscott was a real fascist. He's a weak and an idiot but he's a human being that's why it works you know it's not it's not satire is it it's not satire of the far right really like so many brilliant knobs things it's a sort of study of midlife crisis and midlife crisis indeed or human frailty you know i make it sound i'm making it sound awful people just people just don't seem to believe in me you told me everyone always believed you, and I believed you. I was lying. I don't believe you. It's the truth. I'm almost as big a flop as you are. You are? That's wonderful. God, you're a heartless bastard. And, of course, choosing Fairly Secret Army at 8 o'clock leads very nicely into your 8.30 choice. <laughs> Well, I chose Secret Army after Fairly Secret Army. I didn't just choose it uh, because of their names, though that was partly why. So Secret Army was a TV series that was on in the 1970s, the late 70s, on BBC One on Saturday nights. It was about the resistance during the Second World War in Belgium, and it was incredibly successful and popular in its era. And... I think is the most unfairly neglected archive TV program going. There are clearly shows that are more obscure and there are clearly brilliant shows that, that either didn't get credit at the time or aren't getting credit now. I, I'm not disputing that. But I feel there's no series like Secret Army which was so important and successful on broadcast which has vanished so completely from popular culture or the popular consciousness why is that do you think well partly it's of course down to allo allo so allo allo is modeled so closely on secret army as to be unkind and the long-running success of allo allo scorched the earth (laughs) for anybody watching secret army because when you watch secret army certainly the early episodes in the cafe with monsieur albert the proprietor and the girls in their raincoats and berets. Uh, good moaning, I shall say this, you know, say this only once. It's, they've, uh, it's utterly ruined Secret Army. You've chosen a very grim episode of, the, of Secret Army, haven't you? Well, yeah, so I've chosen the episode Ring of Roses. And forgive me if it sounds like I'm making this up, but in the episode Ring of Roses, some airmen crash from... A flight to, from where is it? South Africa, is it? Anyway, it turns out one of them has got bubonic plague. So the doctor, one of our heroes, and Monique, who works at the cafe, one of our other heroes, are forced into quarantine while the airmen and they all go through the various stages of bubonic plague. And I can remember watching this 
on broadcast when I was 11, and it's searing itself into my memory. Now listen to me. If this were peacetime, and all the medical services were working properly, if this thing got out, there'd be several thousand casualties, men, women, and children, before it could be contained. And now, in wartime, with everything in a mess, there'd be millions in a matter of weeks. It's one of those series, like even perhaps I, Claudius, which is little watched because it's made on VT in a studio. And our ability to watch the filmed play as opposed to the TV film, which we'll come on to, has clearly diminished. But within the, the limits, often self-imposed limitations of that format, the direction and the writing and the acting in Secret Army are superlatively good. And, I, you know, I just described the scenario of that episode, the bubonic plague. I, I've made it sound preposterous, right? Because on paper, it sort of is ridiculous. How will they do that? Actually watching it, because everybody plays it for real, although it's melodramatic in terms of giving them a plot to work with, so people get held up at gunpoint and somebody tries to escape, they do this amazing thing where they, they leap forward days or weeks at a time so that you get to see people going through the stages of the disease or dying when you come back to them in a way that makes you think, I wonder who's going to be left at the end of this episode. Probably might, but there might be nobody left. One of the things that they love doing in Secret Army is killing people off when you least expected it. So you tended to watch it thinking, nothing is guaranteed here. I never thought that we would die like this. I always thought No one will know who we were, what we've done. Just some people who died of a filthy disease. Some of us may recover. 30% of people do, sometimes more. We mustn't be bitter. I'm not bitter. It's just that it's a shame. It's such a waste. I'm so reluctant to take the mickey out of the production values because... You know, I know on one level it's Valentine Dial reaching under his armpit and pretending that he's found a bubo, which is, is as silly as I made it sound. But I do think that the production of TV in the 60s and 70s foregrounds the actors. It's very intimate VT on what the actors can or can't do. And it also throws you onto the writing hard. Imagine that was shot now. Imagine how much time you would spend with the camera focusing on dust dancing in sunlight coming through Venetian blinds in the shut-up room. And that's fine, of course. That's, you know, more filmic and is a, is a very different vocabulary than what we grew up with. But the idea that what we grew up with is old-fashioned, just because it's old-fashioned doesn't mean it isn't full of its own merits. The, uh, the mortuary is almost full. Oh, yes, and unfortunately, there's another new case. Huh? Who is it? Me. You can't be sick. Doctors are not immune, my dear. That's a myth fostered by the American cinema. Oh, yes, I've got a bubo in my groin, and oh, all the other symptoms are coming up like in a textbook. <laughs> I never thought I'd see plague let alone experience it at first hand. God help us now. Okay, Andy, I don't know about you, but I need to pop off to the loo. So while we do that, let's have an ad break. What's your favourite advert? Uh, I hope no one's chosen this already. Uh, It's the Mars uh, Milky Way campaign about cooling your chocolate in the fridge in the summer. Mars Enjoy your Mars favourites, cool and delicious, straight from the fridge. And it is like something that someone in a sunshine desserts meeting from Reggie Perrin would have come up with. We've got all these chocolate bars sales go down in the summer how can we get people to buy more chocolate i know we'll tell them to stick it in the fridge 
Okay, I think we're all refreshed now. So it's 9.30. What's your next choice? It's a film called An Englishman Abroad, written by Alan Bennett, directed by John Schlesinger, starring Alan Bates as the British spy Guy Burgess and Coral Brown, the actress, starring as herself. And it's based on a true story, a thing that happened to Coral Brown, who was touring in a Shakespeare play on a cultural exchange to Moscow in, I think, the 1950s. And one night in the audience was a very drunk Englishman who made a display of himself and ended up throwing up in the toilets and being thrown out of the theatre. And that Englishman was the spy Guy Burgess, who was, of course, living in exile in Moscow. And he sent a note to Coral Brown saying, will you come and see me at my apartment? And An Englishman Abroad is Alan Bennett retelling of that story and what happened. The pedigree of the people involved in this is incredible. So this is like 1983. This was on BBC Two, I reckon. And Alan Bennett made a series of films for the BBC and for ITV in the 70s and 80s which when you look at them now, you think, goodness me, how, how to think that we lived at such a time. There's another one. I nearly chose one called The Insurance Man, which was a film that was made later in the 80s, written by Alan Bennett, directed by Stephen Frears, about Kafka with Daniel Day-Lewis as Kafka. It was just on BBC Two one Sunday night. <laughs> just, inc- just incredible to think of it now, isn't it? Anyway, so you've got this film by John Schlesinger. John Schlesinger, the film director who had made Lest We Forget, Far From The Madding Crowd. Alan Bates, who's a proper film star. It's all filmed on 16mm again, I think. And it's not filmed in Moscow. It's filmed somewhere like Leeds. You'll have to look this up. It was Dundee. Dundee, that's right. So it's filmed in Dundee (laughs) in Scotland in the 1980s. And looks convincingly like Soviet-era Moscow. And I, I chose this because I've probably seen this. This is an, a, a film. It is a film, isn't it? I mean, I suppose it's a TV play, but it's a film. Uh, I've probably seen this more than any other film, except maybe Withnall and I. And it, and it occupies a similar stature for me. It's the most quotable film I've ever seen on TV it is full of brilliant brilliant writing and if you spend any time with me which you have now you've seen it you'll recognize certain phrases which have worked which work their way in my into my day-to-day use and none of which will sound any good to anyone who's never seen this film you don't know what you're missing with this tomato I happen to know is something that I said to you when I've been staying in your house you're not eating your tomato I'm not hungry. Oh, I am. Yum, yum. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Do you see many people here? Oh, yes. Heaps of jobs. I don't know what you're missing with this tomato. So it sort of seems like a proto-withnal to me, where you've got Alan Bates as this charming, very English reprobate who, once you dig down into it a bit, is far less lovable than he seems at first sight. I also think the writing is brilliant in terms of what it means to be English in England, what it means to be English when abroad, and how we feel about loyalty to our country and loyalty to our friends. And... When we adopt the persona of a collector or a very English English person, why are we doing it? What do we get from it? How loyal should we be to our country? How loyal should our country be to us? Whilst also being incredibly funny. Where are we going? Church. Do you like church? I adore it. This one, the singing is very good. The opera singers are in the choir, warming up for the evening performance. That's uh, not another friend. Oh, good God, no. <laughs> when I first came here, I was shadowed by a rather grand policeman. That was when I was a celebrity. 
Nowadays, they're just in the trainees. Ironic, that. I found it incredibly sad. Like with Null and I. It's just the fact that he constantly tries to make out that he's happy with what he's done, but his eyes tell a different story. Yeah. And yet, uh, yes, I agree with that. But at the same time, I think there's a double... I think it's, there's two twists going on. The first twist is that he regrets it. The second twist is he doesn't really regret it. That, that is what's going on there. He would rather not be living in a horrible apartment block in Moscow. Equally, he couldn't live with all the humbug of being that kind of Englishman in that era. I think the real sadness of it is there's no, he doesn't fit anywhere. He's part of the establishment, and he's, as is made totally clear near the end of the film. And yet he's not. He's, he's in exile. But he would be in exile even if he were back in the country. That particular kind of the unhappy, drunk, gay outsider. The gayness of the piece is really, really important as well. We could see An Englishman Abroad as totally a period piece as reflecting a historic frame of mind. But one of the things coming off the back of what we were talking about, Fairly Secret Army, is actually it's probably more contemporary than we like to admit when we still live in a country with characters like Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg around the place. You know, the establishment finds different ways to re-establish itself. Also, I love the thing of Coral Brown playing herself from 30 years earlier, and she's absolutely terrific in it. She gets loads of good lines as well. Suppose someone commits adultery in your precious pyjamas, and I imagine it has occurred. What happens when he orders his next pair of gym jams? Is it sorry, no can do? I'm very sorry. You keep on saying you're sorry. Oh, Jesus Christ. You were quite happy to satisfy this man when he was one of the most notorious buggers in London and a drunkard into the bargain. Oh, yes, but then he was somebody in the foreign office. A little red piping on the sleeve, Mr Burgess, of course. A discreet monogram on the pocket, Mr Burgess. Oh, yes, certainly. And if there's anything else you require, Mr Burgess, we'd be only too happy to ease down your pinstripe trousers and perform. <clears throat> you know, of the things we've talked about today, it's the one, it's the one that I watched it again for this and I could quite easily, when we finish, go off and watch it again. I could just happily sit up here at the top of the post office tower amidst the crumbs of cheese and biscuits just watching an Englishman abroad over and over again well Andy you're not going to watch it now because we've got something else for you at 10.30 you don't know what you're missing with these cheese and biscuits This is an arena, an episode of Arena, obviously the BBC Two's greatest art strand, the greatest arts documentary series ever made. I couldn't programme a night without choosing an episode of Arena. And the one that I chose is my favourite documentary. It's called Joe Orton, A Genius Like Us. Joe Orton was, of course, a playwright, the author of Entertaining Mr Sloan, Loot, What the Butler Saw, uh, the subject of the film Prick Up Your Ears in the 80s, written by Alan Bennett author of An Englishman Abroad, and Orton was killed in August 1967 by his partner, Kenneth Halliwell. Uh, he was murdered in their flat in Knoll Road in Islington. And the title, A Genius Like Us, is because the film is a, about, really, Joe Orton and Kenneth Halliwell, rather than just Joe Orton. And the thing that is remarkable, there are two things that are remarkable about it. The first is the style in which it is made, which is to modernise, languorous to the point of distraction. It's so evocative of a particular kind of literary milieu. There isn't actually much archive footage in it at all of Orton, and there is some footage of Orton, but mostly it is people recorded in the early 1980s reminiscing about Orton. That, that includes the Faber publisher Charles Monteith, who is the star of the whole piece. Should, should I should I talk about the should I talk about the meals? And his, his little chum goes, "Oh yes, tell them about the meals." And he says, "They entertained us, um, and it, it was a, one of the most bizarre and terrible meals I've ever eaten because 
to save their money, to make their lump of savings last as long as possible, uh, they used to live mostly on rice and fish and uh, some golden syrup, which they thought was very nourishing. Uh, the whole thing cost very little, so we had a meal consisting mainly of rice, fish and golden syrup. Well, the first course was rice and sardines, and the <laughs> second course was rice differently cooked rice with golden syrup. Golden syrup, that's right. And also his sister, Joe's sister, Leonie Orton, is on there. Leonie is still alive, and she published a book a couple of years ago with the brilliant title, I Had It In Me. Uh, <laughs> which, which is, um, you know, prick up your ears and all that, uh, is entirely in keeping with her brother's work. But seeing her filmed in, I assume, say, 1981, only 14 years after Orton was killed, I, I get goosebumps watching it because she looks like him. And she and she was younger than him, so she's probably only six or seven years older than Autumn was when he died. There's there's also that brilliant stuff about um, Autumn and Halliwell being sent to prison for defacing library books. That's the sort of thing that shocked quite a number of our readers, the elderly, more ladylike ones. <coughs> I must say that I and many of my colleagues almost looked forward to seeing these. They were they were amusing to us. But at the same time, of course, this was <coughs> this was uh, an attack on our books. Our book stock, of which we were very proud, was being attacked by predators. It has these filmed inserts where they staged some of the plays because they didn't have film footage they could use. They're talking to people who, who had Orton and Halliwell in living memory. So it's as much those things as it is that it's about a writer that I like. But it's also that kind of, it's 50 years ago, just over 50 years ago. I walk down Knoll Road every time I go to record an episode of Batlisted. And, you know, Knoll Road is also where Douglas Adams lived in the late 70s, early 80s, I think. And only millionaires live in Knoll Road now. I very much wanted to come down Knoll Road just to get a sense of the world that Orton and Hallowell lived and wrote about a world of no circumstances. And I remember walking in the door, the smell of ammonia on the linoleum, the wallpaper which was peeling, and it was a rather dilapidated, sad feeling one got. I'm really drawn to this, to a kind of compassionate treatment of these people. And it's not because I'm, I'm, I want to see the lighter side of it. It's with the acknowledgement of them as, you know, they're human beings. Like you and, you and me are human beings of a sort. It just blew me away. It's so brilliant and so slow and so grotty. You know, it's filmed on 16 mil at about, in about February or something, isn't it? John Lahr wandering around in a coat looking cold. In the sheds at the back there, Orton and Hallowell had kept their bikes where they used to take sorties out and around London to look at the architecture to go up to Hampstead Heath. When I got to the top floor, I didn't want to go in because the house was reoccupied and had been redecorated. And I had a very strong feeling about that room. There was a really good film about Orton comparatively recently. But it's got that horrible contemporary style of documentary where they interview four times as many people and allow them to say a quarter of what they say in the arena film. They just don't let people talk. And when they do talk, they just confirm what you already know. They cut to, like, I don't know, Kenneth Cranham saying, I knew Joe and he was a playwright. <laughs> cut. Don't stick around. Don't stick. They'll switch over. They'll switch over. They used to let us into their lives. They... Kenneth had once showed us... Uh a double-page spread in a, in a colour supplement, which was all pills, all those plastic-coated sort of, like, bombs, all in rows, and he showed us all the ones that he had. I don't know about you, but I could do with a drink. What do you fancy? Well, the, in reality, I would have fallen asleep long ago <laughs> because <laughs> we've stayed up quite late and we've watched quite an intense range of things about people being drunk and miserable. And we're sitting in the derelict restaurant of the post office tower. So we better have some booze, really. What can I get you? 
I'll have a whiskey and Coke because we're about to watch um, some 60s pop. Any particular brand? Coca-Cola. Whiskey, you fool. I'm about to douse it in Coca-Cola. It really doesn't matter. I can do Oh, that reminds me. What's your favourite flavour of Monster Munch? Well, I was going to say sizzling bacon. Well, I don't think they do sizzling bacon anymore, did they? Anyway, uh, then I was looking at the lineup of uh, programmes for this perfect night in, and I realised that I had not represented the thing you would expect me to put in, Neil, which is something French. <laughs> so. <laughs> As you know, I always like to, when it comes to books or films, or pop music for that matter, I always like to, uh, <laughs> always like to try and get in something French if I can. So I looked it up and I realised that in France, a company called Intersnack produced their own brand of Monster Munch, which I suppose must be called Monster Munch. And their range of flavours still includes ready salted, ham and cheese, barbecue, ketchup and cream cheese so <laughs> so i my in answer to your question i would like a bag of cream cheese monster munch and while we do that you're going to introduce your next program which infuriatingly doesn't exist anymore picture yourself when you're getting on Okay, so this is an episode of the BBC Two series Colour Me Pop, of which there were several series in the, I think two maybe, in the late 1960s. Every week a different pop group would come on and play for half an hour. And um, there, there are episodes which feature the Moody Blues, and there's a brilliant one that features the Move. There's a famous one that features the Small Faces. And those episodes all still exist, I think. But I've chosen one that doesn't exist by The Kinks. This is from July the 22nd, 1968. And one of my books is about the Kinks album, the Kinks of the Village Green Preservation Society, which is my favourite record. I managed to write 33,000 words about it, could probably write more. And when the Kinks appeared on Colour Me Pop, several months before the release of the Village Green Preservation Society, they played a set which has three songs from the album months before they appear on the record and in a slightly different form to the form in which they appear on the finished record. And when I wrote my book, which was about 15 years ago, that programme didn't exist at all. It had been wiped many, many years ago. But since I wrote the book, two things have happened. The first thing is somebody found an off-air recording of the whole programme, uh, an audio recording. But unlike some of the really brilliant Doctor Who recordings. It wasn't done by a, a, an electronics enthusiast soldering wires into the back of the TV. It was done on a reel-to-reel in somebody's living room with a dog barking in the background. <laughs> but that hasn't prevented Universal Music releasing it on CD. <laughs> It's not even very listenable, this thing. But the other thing is that's happened is I write about this and like several other clips of the kinks on TV from this era, from 1968, and they'd all gone, right, 15 years ago. They were all missing. And since then, nearly all of them have been recovered, fascinatingly. So a performance of Last of the Steam Powered Trains on Once More with Felix popped up about 10 years ago, just on YouTube. And a performance of Days by the Kinks on the Basil Brush show was turned up by uh, the Indiana Jones of TV Recovery about five years ago. He had it for five years before he let anybody see it. But, you know, we've seen it now. We know it exists. So I, I haven't given up hope that this half hour TV special, which is basically the Kinks at their peak playing songs from their best records, that would be my perfect night in. <laughs> if if somebody found it and given that things keep turning up even 50 years later you know perhaps somebody's got it that clip i was referring to of lost the steam powered trains i think a bbc engineer took that home i think i think it was that guy who'd also filmed bowie who every clip that he 
that he was responsible for on the top of the pops or on a light entertainment program he would often take a safety copy home would smuggle it out of the studio so that's why we have those and it's therefore not beyond the bounds of plausibility that that someone might have recovered the kinks it, it's not beyond the bounds of plausibility that a member of the kinks has got a copy in in whatever unplayable format it would be now well we're staying with a musical theme for your final choice at midnight and it's a movie Okay, let's not beat around the bush. This is the greatest film ever made. Even though I know there are many other better films, this is my favourite. And if I remember rightly, Neil, I paid you and Sue money to watch it. You did. I'm so ashamed. Don't be ashamed. It was totally worth the money. Oh. And the reason... No, no, it was really, the reason why it was worth the money was you responded to it in a way that was... I, I can't tell you how... When I say it's the greatest film ever made, I think it is a really, really good, sophisticated, funny, way ahead of its time film. But it only ever gets written about as a, a commercial flop, as a critical flop, as something that killed off the monkey's career, which it did, or even by people who like it, they describe it as being the most psychedelic film ever made, or really far out, or really... And, you know... it. It did kill the monkey's career, and it was a critical flop, and it is very psychedelic. It's got some incredible music and musical sequences in it, but those aren't the things you responded to. When you watched it, you basically went, wait a minute, this is really good. You were totally surprised, weren't you? You thought it was going to be just some stupid bit of 60s kitsch. I've forced people to watch it since you forced me to watch it. I haven't paid them, though. Well, the film starts with the, with the members of the group, the monkeys, committing suicide or attempting to. They all jump off a, the largest arch suspension bridge in the world. There's definitely a theme to this podcast. <laughs> there is, isn't there? These terrible... I did, it's awful doing these things. I did, it just, they're, they're, like, they're like visits to the shrink, aren't they? You know, that is the theme of all these programmes, isn't it? Oh, my God, the theme of these, these programmes is escape and being unable to escape. So in Head... They kill themselves at the beginning and they kill themselves at the end and it makes no difference. <laughs> They're still trapped as the monkeys, which turned out to be true. Can you try and distill the plot of Head? The monkeys are constantly trying to escape from a series of films or TV programmes they are being asked to make. And every time they escape one, they land up in another one, which allows the director, Bob Rafelson, as he said at the time, he thought, I might never get to make another movie. So why don't I try and make 20 in one go? Hey, come on, get up, lady. You're not dead. Hey, lady, come on, get up. Stop acting. Hey, what is this? Hey, come on, stop playing. It's all over. It's in act. Come on, get up. Well, stop kicking me. Oh, I don't want to do this anymore, man. Oh, these fake arrows and this junk and the fake trees. Bob, I'm through. Oh, stink, man. Hey, well, Mickey, wait a minute. It also has these unbelievably intense musical sequences. The porpoise song at the beginning of the film has this incredible solarised footage of the monkeys swimming underwater. You know, re these must have been really, really mind-blowing at the time. The sequence for Daddy's song, which is Davy Jones and one day Mickey hitmaker Tony Basil dancing against a white background dressed in black intercut with them dancing the exact uh, same routine dressed in white against a black background and then flicking backwards and forwards. I would have loved to be in the room when you watched that for the first time, not knowing it was going to happen. It's about a band breaking up, isn't it? But it's also a film about a band breaking up. And in, then, in turn, it's a film about a film about a band breaking up. They're always ending up in a box. They're always ending up in a fish tank or a, or a backstage holding area. 
or the inside of a vacuum cleaner, right? They're always being trapped and they try to get out through violence and they try to get out through Eastern philosophy and they try to get out through music and every time they just end up in a different box. But then, why should I speak since I know nothing? Nothing? You know nothing? That's right. You mean to tell me we've been sitting here listening to you and you know nothing? Well, take it easy, darling. Easy? What do you mean, take it easy? Now, we're stuck in a room. We're stuck in this big black box. Now, you're telling me to take it easy, and he's saying he don't know nothing. Now, what is this? Don't you see, David? It doesn't matter whether we're in the box or not. It's not important, huh? Well, let me tell you something. It's important to me. I'll show you how to get out of this box. You want to get out of this box? This is how you get out. It got really criticised when it came out for being pseudo-intellectual. And it probably is pseudo-intellectual, but it's also intellectual. <laughs> you know, if you look at the films that, say, Freddy and the Dreamers were making at this time, they aren't lightheaded. There's no attempt to engage with Marshall McLuhan in Every Day's a Holiday, starring Freddy and the Dreamers. You can see why people were so angry about it, because... You know, the monkeys had copped a lot of flack for not being a real group, for not playing on their own records, though they played on their records as much as, say, the members of the Birds did. But that's almost irrelevant. It's the idea of a manufactured image, a manufactured pop group, from a group who had, been, had sold more records in 1967 than the Beatles did. People were not tremendously happy about being confronted with the idea that they had been manipulated. Which is, which is totally understandable. I, I just can, the more I think about the film, and I've seen it many, many times, the less plausible it is that it got made. And yet I think it has um, soul in a way that something more authentic or supposedly authentic from the era doesn't. You know, if you, if you put it up against the film of Woodstock, which is the more artificial construction? Probably the film of Woodstock is. You know, even though it's, it's capturing quote-unquote real moments. Don't listen to them, Peter. They're wise guys, punks. All they want to do is hurt people and abuse them. How do you feel now? Oh, come see, come stop. All right, that's enough. Cut, cut it, print it, please. Good hit. All right, that should be it. Okay. Yeah. I think we're on another set. Yeah. Hey, Bob, that's right. not right, man. Well, well you know, about hitting a girl. Hey, is that all right, man? Does that look good? I thought it looked great. Yeah, but about hitting a woman and everything. Man, it's about the image and everything. It's not right. Peter, I hate to interrupt that. Yeah, I know it's for your niece. It's quite all right. Can you imagine One Direction making a film like this? This is what I always think. You know, I applaud the longevity of Boyzone, but that longevity is because they never thought about making head. And this is how Andy Miller's Perfect Night shapes up, starting at 6.30 with an episode of The Avengers, which sees Steed and Mrs Peel fighting for self-preservation when they meet a murderous Village Green Society. This is followed at 7.30 by Top of the Pops, featuring live performances from Driver 67, The Regents and The Vapors Turning Japanese. The fairly secret army are still recruiting at 8pm, Tricky things, continuity announcements. And then it's the turn of the totally secret army, who this week have to fight Nazis and the bubonic plague at 8.30. At 9.30, Alan Bates stars as Guy Burgess in Alan Bennett's An Englishman Abroad. And this is followed at 10.30 by an edition of Arena, which explores the life and career of the playwright Joe Orton. At 11.30, there's an instalment of Colour Me Pop featuring The Kinks, which doesn't exist anymore. And then, at midnight, Andy Gives Us Head, the movie that killed the monkeys. And that's Andy Miller's Perfect Night In. A helpline is available. I've got one last question for you, Andy. And that is, who would you choose to spend your perfect night in with, living or dead? Uh, living. Anyone in particular? I, th I tell you what, I would like to watch this with my friends who I shared a student house with. Because that is the sort of thing that we did when we were students and that was the best thing about being a student, wasn't it? Paul Wright, Michael Keane, Matthew Friedman. We were the Twitter of our day. <laughs> we were being disrespectful about things we actually loved. Thanks, Andy.
Thanks, Neil. I don't know what you're missing with this tomato.